This episode is supported by Jace Medical. You may or may not know that in December, drug shortages across the U.S. hit a record high. This is causing severe disruptions in medical treatments, resulting in delays, treatment cancellations, and the unfortunate rationing of vital medications. I know that I have heard in the last few months from multiple mom friends of mine, instances where they have not been able to get medications for themselves or for their children in critical crisis moments. This is so, so scary. I know I've had friends with their kids having seasonal flu cold symptoms, struggling to breathe, and they're at urgent care and unable to get the antibiotics that they need because of these shortages. This is scary stuff. Most notably, one of the short supply antibiotics is amoxicillin, which is commonly used for so many of our children's illnesses. So here's where Jace Medical comes in. They have the Jace case, which is a personalized emergency medication kit that contains five essential antibiotics that are used for the most common and deadly bacterial infections. And you can also customize your case and add additional life-saving medications based on your or your children's family's unique needs, like an EpiPen, for example, something that you would never want to be without, would never want to have to run from pharmacy to pharmacy in pursuit of. So if you want to go get these medications and have your antibiotics on supply so that you always have them when you need them in case of an emergency, in case of a disaster, in case of being a, you know, a victim of this drug shortage, Jace Medical will have you covered. All you need to do is go to jacemedical.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout for a discount on your order. That's promo code SHAMELESS at jacemedical, J-A-S-E medical.com, jacemedical.com, code SHAMELESS. This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 537 with Maya Luque. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 537. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community, so be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Maya Luque is a strategist. She helps businesses craft smart, perceptive ways of communicating. The focus of her work is to help businesses build strong, long-lasting relationships with their customers. She has an MFA and has created over 100 sculptures and installations. Her background as an artist helps her guide people toward an emotion to help them feel connected. Art is a great strategy because art history is full of telling and reinventing of stories, themes, and emotions. Maya has a passion for observing the ever-shifting puzzle of trends, human nature, and people. Maya is also the author of The Heart of the Matter, EMDR Through an Adoptee's Eyes. She shared her book with me on social media, asking if I would be interested in sharing it with my audience, and I immediately knew that I not only wanted to share the book, but I wanted to interview Maya and hear her whole story. So I asked her if she'd be up for an interview, and I'm so honored that she said yes. Her book and her story are so important. Listening to hear Maya share her journey of being abandoned outside a police station in China during their one-child policy, to living her first 11 months in a Chinese orphanage, to being adopted by a single mom in the U.S. She also shares the lasting impact of her abandonment and how that trauma impacted her ability to cope as a child. She talks about how she vacillated between extreme perfectionism and testing her mom to see if she always would really love her. She shares her lifelong pattern of trying to prove her worth, how she got started in EMDR therapy, what EMDR is and how it helped her recover from her trauma. 
She dives into how EMDR allowed her to finally find herself lovable. And then she shares why she wrote The Heart of the Matter in a really approachable way so that all ages could use it as a tool. I'm so excited and so honored to have Maya here. I want you to listen to the story because Maya's story is amazing. And then I for sure want you to get her book because it is a conversation that is important for so many reasons and will help you expand your worldview to see all the different ways that children are growing up in different circumstances and how our circumstances impact our mental health and how we can use really fantastic tools to help us through our trauma and help us to overcome our trauma. So with all that said, let's dive in with Maya Luque. Maya, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so happy to have you here. Thanks. I'm great and happy to be here. So you reached out to me about your book that you wrote and you said, hey, I wrote this book. I thought your audience might be interested. Would you be open to sharing it? And I (laughs) replied back and said, sure. And also, will you come on my podcast? (laughs) So you weren't expecting to get... (laughs) Definitely unexpected. I know, but the book, oh my gosh. I mean, so the topic is so important. And then I read the book and I was like, this is amazing. And I wanted you to come on for a conversation. So this is your first podcast interview and it's going to be amazing. I'm so excited. Me too. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your kind of standard bio and what you're most excited about right now. Yeah. So I actually am an installation artist. So a lot of that was working with beeswax, creating these kind of mega installations think almost like having an environment that's completely beeswax. So thank Yoya Kusama's Infinity Mirror Rooms that's been blowing up on social media and then channel that to a high. Wow. And then that's it. That's what I did. As far as what I'm most excited about, personally, I'm getting married in June. So that's pretty exciting. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> thank you. I'm really excited. Going to be a bride. <laughs> So fun. But yeah, and thank you. I'm really excited. Obviously, not the best circumstances year-wise, but we are going to make the most of it. I was going to say pandemic wedding. That's a whole adventure. (laughs) No, they don't really have books on this. They have a lot of guidebooks on like how to plan a wedding in normal times. Not so many about during a pandemic. Right. But we're getting a shot. Nice. Remind me, where are you? Are you in the Seattle area? Actually, right now I'm in Sisters, Oregon. I literally moved with my fiance and our cat like the last week of February of last year. So it's a weird time to move. Okay, so still in the Northwest. Yes, Central Oregon. Nice, very nice. Okay, so you wrote this book, The Heart of the Matter. It's this beautiful book about adoption and trauma and recovering from all of that. Can you tell us about your story that led up to the inspiration, which this might take you a few minutes and that's fine, but the story (laughs) that led up to um, your inspiration to write this book? Yeah. So I am actually from China. I was one of the girls that were adopted in the 1990s, early 1990s, primarily, um, just due to the one child policy. And so I really thought about it. And over the years, I've definitely dealt with anxiety and a little bit of like sadness and depression really figuring out where I stood in this world, really figuring out, okay, I'm here and almost having kind of a regret of why am I feeling sad? Why am I feeling like there's something amiss? Why am I feeling the need to, you know, overachieve and really prove myself as if I could be sent back? I really thought about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I felt almost guilty for feeling those feelings. Like, how dare I do that when I have such a safe home, when I have like everything my needs are being met. 
And I really just thought about it. And actually, I had to go to therapy for it as a child. I remember being so anxious if I ever got less than, you know, straight A's or I guess back in elementary school is like pluses, check plus and minuses. But if I ever got, you know, less than all pluses, I was a nervous wreck, just very in need of kind of that reassurance. And so I actually went to traditional therapy. I feel like, you know, in percentage wise, like, are you cured? Like 80%, you know, but I think that last like 20%, I just needed that reassurance. Like, am I doing good? Am I a good person even if I don't have, you know, all pluses on my report card? And it was really kind of like my, who I had my self-worth was really reflective of what I was doing, which is a pretty, you know, unfortunate kind of mindset. That means if you don't do so well one day on a test, your self-esteem just plummets. And so I actually um, was with a LCSW, a licensed clinical social worker, Kate Mounts, who was an expert in EMDR therapy. And after doing it, And going through that process, I realized, you know, this is incredible. I felt more secure. I felt really just able to kind of congratulate myself and be myself without what I was doing being a reflection on me as a person. And that was really empowering. I felt empowered. But I also, before I tried EMDR, I think I put it off for like four different sessions just because I didn't know what to expect. There was literature online, but it was all like adults talking kind of not down to a person, but definitely explaining it in verbiage that I wouldn't understand. Mm. It was definitely something that was coming from a person who hasn't really had the same experience as me. So it didn't really feel as authentic. It felt almost clinical. And I really just thought, like nowadays, when all this is going on, there's a pandemic, everyone's kind of having that empathy piece really huge into play nowadays. I thought, hey, what can I do? And so I drew this book, I created it, kind of gotten back in touch with Kate Mounts, who was my therapist, and really just figured out, okay, how can I make this accessible? How can I help people help themselves, but be really aware of what they're doing and not feel afraid to do it and take that step? So really, that's what I was doing when I created this book. I love your story. And I want to actually go back a little bit and dive into a few pieces of it, kind of the early on pieces. So can you tell us, you mentioned the one child policy. Can you remind people who might not clearly remember that from the 90s, or maybe explain it to people who don't know what that is and kind of explain what that was in China and how so many girls ended up over in the US as a result? Yes. So unfortunately, China had a huge population. I say unfortunately, because the government was trying figure out any way to kind of make it so that China was inhabitable and populated. What they actually was enforced was policy. And what that meant for a lot of people was that one child could be per family. Now, there was a few exceptions. If you had, let's say, a child who was deemed either mentally or physically disabled, you were allowed to have another one. But a lot of parents actually decided they only wanted male children. They did that actually because in Unfortunately, for a lot of people, females were considered almost less than males. They didn't have the same dowry system. And so you actually had to give them to the husband's family if they were getting married, as opposed to getting a member of your family, having more people to take care of you as you aged. It's an unfortunate process, I think, because a lot of baby girls ended up either being aborted, they ended up being, um, unfortunately, um, killed, and then a lot a lot of them actually were set up for For me personally, I was left near a police station, luckily enough. 
And so a lot of girls were given up for adoption. There was a huge influx of baby girls being adopted in the 90s when this policy was very much in place. And you had a lot of people almost in villages and towns like turning on each other. You had people reporting each other for having more than one child. You had people very questioning, very heavily questioned if they were pregnant. Are you pregnant? You know, and it was very much deemed an illegal situation to have more than one child unless you were given the okay. Because in the 90s, I would have been like in my... I'm trying to think early 20s, well, in the late 90s. So this was not so much on my radar at the time. I've learned of it since. What is the policy now? The policy officially ended, which is really, really great. But a lot of people definitely feel the repercussions of the policy. There are rural towns where there are only males. They call them almost bachelor towns because there, quite frankly, are no females who have grown up and are marrying age because they all either were, you know, unfortunately killed or given up for adoption such a like the long-term ramifications of such a awful policy are mind-blowing absolutely they're huge especially now that you know babies my age are now adults and of that marrying age they're feeling the ramifications extremely heavily yeah yeah it's really really fascinating and like you said just devastating in so many ways okay so you were left outside of a police station and then from there were you at what age were you adopted I was adopted at 11 months of age. I was taken to an orphanage. They had very, very crowded orphanages, as I'm sure you can imagine. It was illegal to drop off a baby. And so to even put me nearby a police station was a huge risk because they could have been imprisoned, my parents, had they been found out. Okay. And so I was adopted through an adoption agency. There was a few of them around the 90s catering specifically to Chinese babies and baby girls in particular. And so I was adopted then. Okay. All right. So you came at at 11 months, you were moved from the orphanage, adopted into your parents' home. And tell us a little bit about that. Where did your parents live and what was that family dynamic? Yeah. So I was actually adopted by a single parent, a single mother, and she is, or she was before she retired, rather, a elementary school teacher. And it was interesting because in China, the orphanages are so crowded that everyone had to be swaddled. And so a lot of the skills that you learn as a baby, just kind of crawling around, you know, sitting up, I didn't have. So I was actually pretty delayed and didn't know how to use my arms, my legs. I had no core muscles. I was pretty much just a meatloaf style kind of baby. And yeah, it was just really interesting. So my mom worked with me, my grandmother, my grandpa delayed. My balance was completely off. For the first time, I could see, you know, hands in front of my face. It was a very weird thing. I remember being told my grandma spent hours pick, choosing and um, learning and teaching how to pick up Cheerios. And that was a new skill for me. For instance, you know, you can't see your face. You can't see your hands in front of your face. Everything is very much just not a part of that. You don't have access really to the use of your limbs. And so it was definitely a new experience, kind of learning how to interact with people. Wow, that's really interesting. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. 
I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. So you were living with your mom, your grandmother was there supporting you, and they were like teaching you how to exist in ways that you had never, like how to be human in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I was probably like four to six months behind a lot of other kids. It took me until I was a year and a half to sit up, for example, which is a skill that other babies learn much earlier than that. So it's really just kind of like I was delayed in a lot of ways. And I think that maybe that, you know, internalized and that's one of the reasons I tried to kind of work extra hard to, you know, stand out with the pack and be one of the best because, you know, maybe I had some residual stuff concerning me not being so great at things, me being delayed in a lot of ways. Yeah. Tell us about your adoptive mom. I'm so intrigued and impressed by this woman who would as a single woman decide to adopt a baby from an orphanage in China. That says a lot about a person. Absolutely. So we were in Portland, Oregon, and she actually taught in Vancouver. It was a really tough journey for her, actually, because the kind of gate, so to speak, of China and adoption closed the year before when she was originally trying to adopt a baby. Mm. They completely closed and she didn't know where she would get her baby. And then a year later, they opened up and they sent her my picture. She actually wore my picture in a very, very long chain, almost so that it hung right where I would be if I was from her um, own uterus and own stomach. She hung that chain on her necklace, right? So that she was almost as if she was pregnant, she said. And that really meant a lot to me. She had a lot of books and kind of games that she would teach me. She would bring tons of games. She was just so excited to have a child that she kind of wanted to give them everything in the world. Oh my gosh. I love that. That's so great. And so tell us about, so you talk in the book, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and you referenced it a little bit earlier, when you come from a 
position of having gone through trauma and having been in a place where you didn't have a primary caregiver in those first 11 months, or you probably had multiple caregivers, but maybe not an attachment to one single person. There's trauma that happens there for sure. And I know you said in the book that you spent years alternating between trying to be perfect and then going from that end of the spectrum to testing your mom to make sure that she would really love you no matter what. Can you kind of talk about those two ends of the spectrum and what they looked like and how you vacillated between the two. Absolutely. I think that, you know, when you're adopted and when you have trauma of any sort, there's no one way you're supposed to act. You have kind of these textbooks and literature online that says, oh, some people will, you know, be very much in need of support. They'll be very needy. They'll cling to you while others will say, oh, you get angry or sad. I oscillated between a lot of those. There was no kind of set direction. Some days I felt very secure. Some days I wanted to prove myself almost as if she would send me back. And other days I was testing the waters. Absolutely. I think especially in middle school, I tested the waters in a big way because it was almost like a self-sabotage. It was trying to prove myself and my worth. And it was a really unfortunate pattern. And there was no kind of direct timing. There was no one month of this, then one month of that. It was just whatever I was feeling on the day. And I'm sure it was the most confusing and heartbreaking times because no matter how many times she would say, I love you or give me books as a child, that was similar to like, mama, do you love me? That story, you know, I never really kind of had that sink in for me until EMDR. Right. Yeah. It makes sense coming from that place of trauma that you would be kind of switching between those two modes of being perfect and then like testing and pushing limits and boundaries. And in that way, can you talk a little bit about, did you have a conscientious fear of of abandonment or was that more subconscious? I think it was more subconscious for me. While my mom would call it out and say, I'm not going to leave you. I'm always here for you. I definitely would internalize it and I wouldn't internalize it. I would make something very much more than it needs to be. So for example, like I said, on my report cards, if I didn't get all A's, I had this striving need to be perfect to kind of go into a room where she was and announce, hey, I've done this, 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 and this well today. I would almost Mm -hmm. make lists of all the reasons that I was worthy and valid. And I would come in and be very excited, but also very nervous. I remember when she was reading reports I did and kind of editing them in middle school, I was so nervous for any critique of, oh, there should be a comma here or, you know, things like that. I actually would leave the room when she would edit my papers because I was so heartbroken that, you know, I wouldn't have perfect grammar in a report, things that, you know, don't need to be like this huge end of the world scenario, but I would cry Mm -hmm. a lot. I would feel really insecure about that, you know, and it was just a really, a really tough time. She actually befriended a lot of other single mothers and they had this group of girls adopted from China. And originally it was thought, Hey, these girls had a shared experience. So did the mothers. Let's all talk about it. Ironically, that was in Portland and there are all these people having these same experiences. But whereas I tried to be perfect, a lot of the girls kind of rebelled. Mm -hmm. They were either very withdrawn into themselves throughout school and in general, or they acted out in very big ways. Some would kind of go to the crazy aspect of the spectrum as far as rebelling, stealing a car, crashing the car. It was a company car too. Some would, you know, revert into themselves and just not say anything in front of others. Right. And so it was a huge spectrum. And as a little girl, I absolutely hated that group. I hated. Oh, interesting. I was, I was thinking, I oh, I, must have been a... I could be swapped out. 
Wow. I would have thought that would have <laughs> no, been comforting. I, I and it was maybe like, I thought I could be swapped out. Wow. No, That's so I think interesting. I was so worried I'd be swapped for someone else. I was so worried that, you know, I didn't have anything in common with these girls. They chose very, or they didn't choose, but they had very different routes to their own adoption process than I did. Yeah. Whereas I was kind of a perfectionist and a, a go-getter. Some of the other girls chose different paths or, and had different paths. And, you know, all of these feelings are absolutely valid, but that just wasn't my journey. And I almost didn't want to be associated with China or with mm. that situation with these other girls. And I pretty much stuck my claim. I went on strike, so to speak, as a child, which any parent could tell you is not going to work if you're <laughs> an elementary schooler and saying, I don't want to do this. Right. You don't have a choice. You know? Right. And so I basically was almost forced into this connection with these girls, but I absolutely resented it. It was a weird, weird time. What age were you at that time? I was in elementary school and before. Okay. So about under. Okay. That is so fascinating. Cause I would imagine that your mom felt relief in finding that group. <laughs> and then it sounds like it kind of, it kind of imploded. Absolutely. It pretty much, we had reverse experiences. She absolutely felt like she could get support from these adult women. And I much rather would hang out with the parents than the kids. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. much in, more into that. And actually my mom was really good at doing hair. She would do little hairstyles, the bows of the 90s, the velvet bows. We all had them, the bowl cuts, everything. Oh my gosh. Like just scared and angry when she would do someone else's hair because it was almost like she was parenting them. And it was just this weird feeling that I couldn't even describe. It was a feeling way bigger than like my little, you know, eight-year-old body could contain. Right. It was just a very unique time for sure. Yeah. So from there, at what point did you start doing therapy and then moving into EMDR? Yeah. So I started therapy in fourth grade, but I actually kind of stopped and started a few different times, but it wasn't until high school that I tried EMDR. I was going away from college to college. I, in typical go-getter fashion, applied to eight different undergraduate universities. Interestingly enough, I got into all eight, but I don't know how that happened necessarily, (laughs) but I mean, I worked really hard and I was really nervous about going away for college. I was terrified. I'm not ashamed to admit that. Yeah. I didn't know I what it would too. entail. I didn't. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, what are the dorms like? Do you have to share rooms? You know, X, Y, and Z. It was very much a surreal experience. It was a different time. So you were in and out of therapy leading up to college. And then when did you start EMDR? Yeah. So I started EMDR in high school. So my okay. junior, senior year of high school. And I cannot tell you how much I am grateful to Kate, my therapist. She really just took it in stride. She knew I didn't want to be there. I knew I didn't want to be there, but she was very accepting. She valued my feelings and she, more than anything, talked me through the process. I think she and also my own experience were the inspiration for the book because she talked to me exactly how I talk in this book. She broke it down for me what EMDR was what the whole process was that you might feel worse before you felt better. And she came from it from a place where she actually knew herself some early life trauma. She was adopted herself. And so it wasn't just, you know, this hypothetical, you will feel better because of this. It was, I've been there too. And that made all the difference. Can you tell people what EMDR stands for and then what it's actually like to experience? What was that? Especially like maybe walk us a little bit through maybe what that first session was like for us to understand. 
Yeah, EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And so what it does, there's a very interesting thing. There's this light sensor bar, which I have on the cover of my book. You have these green lights that go back and forth. They'll light up and it'll go left to right, left to right. You also have headphones sometimes, which has like a beeping, which corresponds to the light bar. And you also have tappers probably. And these tappers, you basically hold one in each hand. It's on the cover of my book. They're about palm size and they'll buzz, like just make this little vibration and move just depending on where the light is. And it will be a really soothing light going back and forth. It'll change speeds just depending on where you're at in your EMDR journey. And your therapist will kind of guide you through your experience. They'll have prompts, but they won't say exactly what happened. You actually almost see it almost like in a dream in front of your mind's eye. Think about watching a movie. It's like that, but with your own experiences. Take a lot of breaks. I personally recommend having chocolate nearby just to kind of re-energize yourself and some water. But I mean, I personally had Snickers. I don't know if that's trademark <laughs> to say that, but I personally had Snickers and it really did help me. So when you're in these sessions and you say you're watching your uh, the movie that's of your own life, is the therapist like walking you through a life experience that you've had? And then the, you're watching this light as you're kind of talking through that experience? Absolutely. So you actually look at the light as opposed to at the therapist. They're okay. almost just like a sound in the background. Okay. And you actually do EMDR through a few different sessions. So probably around like eight or something similar to that. It obviously just depends on where you're at and anyone's journey, fast or slow, whatever a week amount it takes, completely valid. But for me, I think if I can remember correctly, it was around eight. But basically you have these pauses in between because it's a lot when you're kind of rewriting your trauma, rewriting your story, you want breaks. And I completely am grateful to Kate for these breaks in EMDR, allowing you to just take a pause, take a breath, kind of detach yourself from that movie of your life to look at her or your therapist and just like know that you're safe now. Your body almost goes into the kind of tense, probably sweaty version of what you're nervous because this thing is happening to you again. You see yourself as, you know, small child, even if you don't have these memories personally, but you've been told them, mm-hmm. you're kind of walked through the whole thing. And so to have those pauses is absolutely crucial. You're told to kind of pick a container and in that container so that you can pause between sessions and go about your week without, Yeah, you that's know, what I was wondering. Really How do you go between sessions? <laughs> Exactly. You're kind of, you imagine this container. So I drew it in the book, different containers. You can have some are like hat boxes, some are like safes. Mine, think Harry Potter, like the green vaults. You kind of just have all these different layers to the vaults. I really liked compartmentalizing the idea of that. Like mine was like green just very organized without all the goblins, but like very (laughs) organized. But what you do is you kind of like lock the memory in there for a bit. You lock it in there and you're given a lot of tools so that if you say, hey, like you're not suppressing it. I think that a lot of times when you just don't want to talk about something and you're emotional, you'll suppress it. And this Mm -hmm. isn't that. You're saying, hey, Mm -hmm. this emotion or thought is valid. I'm putting it in a container, which I'll open later. And even just imagining it like that really helped me saying like, hey, it's valid and I'll deal with it later as opposed to just saying, I'm not dealing with it, period. Just kind of reworking that thought process really did help. This is so fascinating. And so when you're doing, are you doing this just around like one specific 
period of trauma in your life. So for example, you maybe just doing this around this period of being in an orphanage in China, or is it something that you're doing that where you're looking back at the course of a longer term, like the first seven years of your life or something like that? Yeah, you can do either one. They'll, the therapist will kind of start you out with one story, the one that is most kind of in your mind, you almost get like these ideas and they'll kind of give you these prompts, almost like at least Kate did for me. You know, what are you feeling? Are you feeling bothered? Are you feeling sad? Are you feeling, et cetera? And you're kind of given these choices. They're given these kind of zones where you're like, hey, how big is my bother level? You know, scale of one to 10. You know, how true is this? Scale of one to 10. Do I feel like I'm bad? You know, scale of one to 10. How, you know, things like that. Mm. And it actually really, really helps. But basically, you're given a few options almost. You're given like the choice to say, hey, What's bothering you the most? What memory right now is the worst for you? And I remember when I was doing EMDR, it almost felt like, just imagine like ice cubes in your just whole body, but, and then you like, can't really talk. I have never talked really about my adoption till up until then, except in like very short snippets, like, yes, I'm adopted. That's it. It's very factual, very clinical, Mm. very like just the facts and nothing else because I just couldn't get into that. It was almost like I couldn't, there was like this blockage about me talking about it. And it wasn't something that was totally, I was aware of, but I just refused to talk about it in like mushy gushy terms or any emotional terms. It was a lot safer for me that way. And it was almost like a survival mechanism. But with EMDR, it was almost like these ice cubes are melting. And yeah, it was like kind of chilling at first. You kind of feel worse before you feel better because you actually have to confront these ideas and feelings. Yeah, And that kind of sucks. Right. That's going to be honest. That's a big commitment. And then it gets better. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think the thing I valued most about Kate, she gave you those breaks. She gave me those times to be like, this is really hard. Like I would be looking at the lights and I would be crying while I did that. And you would almost have this moment for EMDR, you basically say what you see. And so she'll ask you questions like, what do you see now? Or what happened next? And you'll say it. But you'll be looking at these lights and you'll be talking to Kate or your therapist. You'll have these either sound um, headphones or these um, tappers. And it's really just kind of about the moment. You don't even recognize that there's so many elements going on. It's just you and the story. And the fact that, you know, Kate was there every step of the way, giving me these pauses to come back to where I was in the room really helped. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, 
a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests, too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. So can you, and this might be, I'm, this is like getting into the science of it and I know you're not a therapist, but can you, no, I may or may not be able to answer it, right, which is totally fine. And you, and I should have said this at the beginning of the interview, you, when I, when we were talking about scheduling this interview, you were like, I'm happy to answer questions and talk about my story, but like, I'm not a therapist. And so I, you know, so we totally understand the limitations of what you might know, but I'm curious, what is the connection of the lights to helping you recover from trauma? And, and let me preface this with saying that I know EMDR has been proven in a lot of ways to be really helpful in helping us process and recover from trauma. And it is my understanding is this connection to these lights and how that triggers things in our brain. Can you explain any more than that? <laughs> I can make a guess. I can make Okay, yeah, let's hear your guess. guess. There. Let's hear your but, guess. Yeah, I mean based like on your EMDR experience. Therapist, yeah, EMDR therapists around the world this may not be correct. This may be me discussing, so please stay with me. Right. And forgive me if I'm totally just putting my foot in my mouth. But for me, it almost was like this kind of hypnotic, relaxing thing. It took mm-hmm. me almost out of where I was in the room. And it gave me kind of something to almost like lull myself. It was almost like my eyes were at half mast, my eyelids. I was kind of just lulled into this almost dreamy like state. I really do mean it when it said I was like watching a movie with my own life on the screen. Except these parts of the movie where I don't even remember it personally, but I've just been told about it. Like, I don't remember the police station where I was left, but I could kind of visualize it in MDR. Okay. And after going through those eight sessions, did you have pretty immediate relief or was it relief over time as you continued therapy that things started to shift for you? Yeah, I definitely noticed it like uh, as a relief. It's almost like I was carrying this like 20 pound sandbag around with me my whole life. And it was slowly like I was letting out the sand and I was like, I was fatigued. I'll be honest with you. It was emotionally fatiguing. Imagine like a really, really stressful day, just having a really big cry and how tired you are after that. But you just also have that release. Sometimes you need a good cry. Let's be honest. And so it almost felt like that. But as far as how it interacted with me day to day, I would notice things differently. Sometimes not right away. Sometimes it'd be years later where I'd be like, oh, I'm cool with that. And so it really just depends. I think everyone's story is different and everyone's journey is different. Mine, I felt that relief, that kind of release of just, oh, I'm good, like a weight has been lifted, but it also takes some time. And I mentioned this in my book, but there's this thing called like butterfly tapping. And it's, um, I'm forgetting what page it's on, but it's in the book where you basically have this thing where you give yourself a butterfly hug. You almost like, it's kind of reminds me of like this little bird or butterfly, I guess they would call it, but you wrap your two thumbs around each other and you make this kind of like bird in flight look with your hands. And then you just tap lightly on your collarbones. And it almost simulates the tappers when you're actually doing EMDR. It's almost like a tune up for a car. Every once Mm. in a while, you just need to like, fix it up, even though you bought it brand new, um, kind of thing. It's like that. So it's like a tune up. So interesting. 
tell us about your life now in comparison to this young girl who was nervous and anxious and trying so hard and also testing your mom at times. And what is your life now in comparison? Yeah, I feel incredibly lucky. I feel incredibly just grateful for what I have. A while back, like in my teens, I was so scared. I was unlovable. I was just terrified because, you know, you're told all throughout your life and, you know, in the media, everywhere, in movies, your parents will be the ones who love you the most from the very beginning. But my parents, you know, I felt like they didn't because I was adopted. My original parents left me or it was just this weird kind of thing because you're told by the media and by, you know, growing up and watching these cartoons. Your parents are always there for you. You know, they'll embarrass you, but they'll love you. And I felt like that initial betrayal was definitely something that would affect my love in the future, my lovability and my ability to love both. And I think that I was very fortunate to find Kate and have her work with me in EMDR because right now, like I said, I am happily engaged. I am getting married in June, you know, God willing right now, but I have a dress picked out and I feel really happy. It's not just one of those things where you wonder, hey, will this make him mad? Will he still love me? Which I think that before it would have happened like that. Mm -hmm. I don't take out the trash when I said I would. Would he still love me? Would I still be lovable? It's more just, oh, my bad. Let me do it now. Yeah. And so it definitely shifted my view about myself more than anything, but also my view of the way I can say like right now in full transparency that China was dealing with a tough issue. They didn't have enough resources, land, food, et cetera. That definitely, I don't believe was the way to handle it. I think it led to a lot of really unfortunate situations. However, I do understand what my parents had to go through that hard choice. Yeah. And it's a very different government than here. And so I just have to accept it. They did their best with the cards they were dealt. And while I may never like be on one of those documentaries where you find them and confront them and there's a tearful reunion, I'm okay with that. I'm Mm -hmm. okay with my story and with myself. Do you have any desire to meet your parents in China, your biological parents? You know, I've been asked that a few times throughout my life and I don't think I need to. I think, first of all, the language barrier would be huge. I know that (laughs) Chinese is a very tough language to learn. And if you mess up with your pronunciation of it, even if you say the same thing phonetically, you could say horse instead of mother, (laughs) for example, (laughs) which that would be very uncomfortable. I would never want to disrespect someone that way. But also, it's one of those things where I don't really need to in my life if I did. I don't think it would be as intense and I don't think I'd be as betrayed feeling it had done not done EMDR. Mm -hmm. However, I really don't need to. I feel complete unto myself. I love that. Tell me about your relationship with your mom today. Yes, my relationship with my mom. Um, So she is going to be at my wedding, of course. And I'm very excited. I feel like there's a lot more trust there than would have been otherwise. I think that definitely, you know, there's been rockiness throughout the relationship, like with everyone, I think Mm -hmm. with their mom and dad, you know, you just have those personalities and everyone's opinion and feeling is valid. It just like how you share it, how you communicate. And I think that through MDR, I'm able to not act and react almost like a wounded animal to Mm -hmm. perceive criticism. 
I'm able to just say, oh, there wasn't a period or a comma where there should have been or things like that. And so it's definitely, I think, more of an honest relationship now. I can say if I'm feeling, you know, hurt by something, I can say if I, you know, don't like something she said to me, it's definitely more honest. Whereas before I was afraid to even say like, hey, and go shower without asking permission first. It's a very different relationship. Mm. It sounds like you feel a much greater sense of power, like not power in a hierarchical way, but just like that you actually have some power. Absolutely. It's like, there's room in the relationship for my feelings too. And, you know, it's very exciting. It's very empowering. Like you said, it's saying that my being matters. And I think that's what EMGR really gave me. It's the sense that I matter. Mm, That's so significant. I want to talk a little bit about your art. Um, so you illustrated this book. You so the, you wrote the book, which is the book is so fascinating. I th- think anyone who <laughs> anyone who's gone through trauma, anyone who is in therapy for anything, anyone who has any curiosity about EMDR, especially as a treatment for trauma, I think would be just totally captivated by the book. And it's written in, I don't think it's intended to be a children's book, but it's written kind of in, because it's, it's the size of a children's book and, and it has this beautiful art with it. So originally I was like, yeah. my son. And then I was like, I don't think this is for my son. Like he's eight, but I also <laughs> yeah. like there's, it could, I actually totally think a teenager could read it. Um, but tell us about, so anyways, it's not a super long read is my point. So I encourage adults to get this. And I think teenagers, it would be re- very relatable for teens who've been through trauma. Can you um, talk about though, the art, the art in it is just, it's beautiful and stunning and very personal. Um, can you talk about Thank using you. your own art in your book? Absolutely. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. It is the size of a children's book. I wanted to break it down so that it would be almost similar to that because I wanted it to be an approachable concept. That's why the art in it is almost like a cartoony version because I wanted it to be a really approachable book. I think that, you know, kind of widening the audience, anyone can do EMDR to childhood to adults. And I wanted to make that kind of broad as far as why I drew it personally. You know, it's definitely something very vulnerable to do EMDR and to kind of say, hey, try this with your very own, with other people's very own personal experiences. I thought that being my most vulnerable self would be an honoring their most vulnerable self. I think that without those drawings and me kind of, you know, being fully transparent with what I experienced, that I didn't have a place or like to stand on asking others to do that, you know? That makes- and think that it was right to say, hey, this is my vulnerable thing, but you do yours without being fully transparent. It just didn't seem right. Yeah. I'm actually looking back through the pictures again right now. And I'm like going to take back what I said that a teenager could use this. Because now I'm like, I actually, my eight-year-old would really relate to the, the art in here. And I mean, the, the topic. Of- yeah. I think like I wanted to make it so wide. Yeah. The topic of trauma, I think, you know, might be a little much for him as an eight-year-old, but the way that you write about it and also yeah. the way that the art is presented, it actually, like, I love that you were so intentional and used the word approachable because it's absolutely very approachable. And I think that's so significant. And I, I think that's really important. Can you tell us what Thank other you. projects? I mean, yeah, you're welcome. Can you tell us what other oh, projects? Sorry, what other projects? Working? Yeah. What other projects are you working on? What are you up to now? So I actually, during the height of the pandemic, also did a 30-page coloring book 
called Color for Charity. And I realized because I was looking around on LinkedIn, for example, I was seeing how many people are really just going out of their way to help others. I was seeing on the news, you know, people paying for other people's groceries when they were a grocery clerk. That was incredible to me. And I thought, okay, Maya, what can you do? Yes, you can donate your time. Yes, you can donate your money. But what can you do? And so I noticed a lot of people were reverting back to kind of things around the house, obviously. Home improvement projects. Baking was huge. I think the British Bake Off got like another probably 12 seasons in the mix because of it. (laughs) And I noticed that people were doing puzzles and coloring. They were like going through those puzzles and they were coloring a lot. And I was like, hey, I'm going to do a coloring book. I'm going to make one. I personally never thought I could draw. I thought I was awful at it. And this coloring book that I made, 30 page, hand drawn, no tracing, no this, no that. It was just me and a pen and whatever was on the paper was just going to be it. If I made a mistake, I just was like a Bob Ross. Hey, <laughs> smudge, let it now be a bush. You know? right. <laughs> this is now a bush, not a smudge. I was mm. completely Bob Rossian about it. If that's, you know, a mantra or a way of mode of life, but I went completely Bob Ross and I made it. And half of the proceeds actually go to Feeding America from every sale. It's on Amazon as well. But I wanted to make sure that I gave back. So not only was I kind of filling a void with people who frankly were bored and around the house, or maybe their kids were running around crazy and they wanted them to just kind of do something for a few minutes while they, you know, checked on the casserole. So I really just wanted to make this coloring book. But yeah, half the proceeds go and profits go to Feeding America, the nation's largest hunger relief charity organization. And that's what I decided to do. And actually the full size prints of those, which I actually had to, you know, make them a lot smaller. I scanned them and made them a lot smaller into a normal eight and a half by 11. But the full, you know, 24 by 30 inch coloring, I actually colored in with um, just normal pen and ink. And they're all for sale on my website so that people can have the full version. So, so cool. Okay. So one more question. And then I want you to tell everyone where they can get all of these great things. So tell us in what ways you are currently showing up shamelessly. In what ways? I think that more than anything, I'm just being there for myself. I think that kind of translates to the heart of the matter. I'm making sure that I'm doing good things for myself. I'm carving out that space. Obviously, there's no kind of barrier anymore between work and home. But I'm doing things to be good to myself, to my cat son, T. Woods. His name is Tiger Woods, which hopefully does not bode too horribly for my marriage. But he's very sweet. And he helped, I think, the human win the Masters. (laughs) I mean, I got him right before the Masters. So I'm hoping that, you know, Tiger Woods, the human, won the Masters after I got my cat. So I'm hoping for my caddy fee anytime. Yeah, I'm just carving out a space to be good to myself. I'm, you know, taking Epsom salt baths. I'm, you know, coloring. I'm making sure that I have dance parties occasionally with my fiance. He probably doesn't want me to say that. But, you know, <laughs> just carving out that space for myself. But I will say this. I do a mean macarena. <laughs> I love it. So good. Oh my goodness. This has been such a great conversation. I feel like we've had fun with it, but we've also talked about some really big, heavy, traumatic life circumstances and situations in in your story. And I'm so grateful. And I feel like you also shed some really optimistic light on how people can deal with trauma and overcome trauma in order to start recovering from trauma. 
Can you tell people where they can find you, where they can get the book, get your art, all the good stuff? Yes. So thank you again for having me first and foremost. They can find me on Instagram, Maya Lulu 1993. The link will be in the bio of the podcast. Um, my website, mayalupe.com. That's how to pronounce my last name. It's very confusing. <laughs> and just reach out. I'm always happy to chat. DM me. I'm always happy to talk to people. I personally love talking to other people. So please chat me up. I love it. Thank you, Maya, so much for being here. This was so awesome. I'm so grateful for you. And I'm really excited to share your story and your book with the world. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And yeah, all those books and links can be found online on Amazon. The full color drawings can be found on my website. And I really appreciate that. Perfect. Yes. So we'll link everything up at the show notes. If people go to shamelessmom.com and click on the episode with Maya Luque, then everything will be right there um, in those show notes. Thank you so much, Maya. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be shameless mom of the week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy.